Wow, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. And then we said, this is my story. And I want to pause for a second. Is that true of you? Is that true of each of us this morning? I realize in a gathering like this, and some of, some of you have been invited by friends or guests, or you just decided to, to show up this morning. Uh, we don't know you. We'd love to know you. Um, and, but, but I don't know if, if this is true of you. I pray that it would be. The only reason, the only way, the only way that the story of Jesus, that Jesus is mine, that this would be your story, is if you understand the gospel. This is the only way. If you understand the gospel and respond to the gospel by faith and repentance. Well, friends, one of the things that we as a church have been entrusted with is that we have been entrusted with this gospel. The church of Jesus Christ has been entrusted with this gospel, which means making it known. The only way we can, people around this earth can say Jesus is mine is if they hear the gospel, if they believe the gospel, and they respond to the gospel. And the church has been entrusted with this gospel to make it known. And one of the things the church has been entrusted with is not just to make the gospel known, but also to protect the gospel. To protect it. Not in the sense of keeping it to yourself. You know, protecting it like, like you know, putting it in and, and not letting anyone show, you know, know it. Not that kind of protection. A different kind of protection. The kind of protection that keeps it away from being distorted. The kind of protection that keeps it away from being um, made cheap and insignificant or unpowerful. The kind of protection that actually gives it its true value, its true nature, its true influence and impact. And this morning I want to talk to you again about protecting the gospel. How do we protect the gospel? Last week, we have looked at the danger of adding to the gospel in the, in the Jerusalem Council. Today, we continue to stay at, at the Jerusalem Council, but we will look at protecting the gospel by recovering its God-centeredness. We want to protect the gospel by recovering its, God's, its God-centeredness. Are there ways in which the gospel can lose its God-centeredness today? Yes. Sadly. Let me give you some examples. When the gospel is more about man than about God, the gospel loses its God-centeredness. And therefore, the gospel is in danger when we make man the center of the gospel, we lose its God-centeredness. When we make man the ultimate beneficiary of the gospel, we lose its God-centeredness. When we continue to debate our own preferences about the gospel message, either subtracting from the gospel or adding to it, and thus changing it, Changing this gospel, 
we lose its God's centeredness. So as we listen to part two of the Jerusalem Council, I invite you to open your scripture and invite you to listen carefully. And as we will read the scripture, listen carefully to the God-centeredness that is going on in this passage in order to protect the gospel. I will be reading and invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I will read from verse 1 to 21, but we'll only focus today's message on verse 12 to 21. But let's read again the, the entirety of this, of this council so that we understand what's going on. By the way, if you did not bring your Bible today, we encourage you to get a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. It's on page number 923. Let's read God's Word together. This is the Word of the Lord. But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. And before we go on, would you join with me in a word of prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to use this word for our hearts. Thank you, O Lord, for revealing your mighty word to us. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us from this passage. Speak to our hearts words which we must hear. We pray that you would encounter us in a special way. I pray this in the name of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The importance of protecting the gospel. Friends, if you're a Christian, you are given this heavy trust to protect the gospel. You have been given this heavy and precious treasure to protect the gospel. Last week, we described in more detail the danger of adding to the gospel. In the case of Acts 15, the addition was to make circumcision a condition of salvation. Last week, we also looked at Peter's speech and how he gave instructions to the church about this danger. And today, we'll be considering the speeches of Barnabas and Paul and James. And we'll be focusing on, on verses 12 to 21. But before we look at what Barnabas and James and, and Paul uh, have spoken to the church about protecting this gospel, I want us to look at something that happened after Peter's speech. It's in the passage. It's an important detail. And I think it's, it's somewhat helpful for us to experience this before we move on to the speeches of, of Paul and Barnabas and James. And, the first, and here's the first point for those of you who take notes, who like taking notes. Here's the first point. The church responded with silence. The church responded with silence. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. Why is this an important detail? Well, this was not just an issue of noise. Not at all. Um, look up what was going on among them uh, prior to this point. Look at verse 7. There had been much debate. Yes, the church in Antioch sent Barnabas and Paul to figure out this issue of circumcision uh, because there were new teachers who claimed that unless people are circumcised, they cannot be saved. So when the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem got together to discuss this theological matter, by the way, the leaders of the church are responsible to, to ensure that there's theological correctness in the church. They're not the only ones who are responsible for this. The, the church is responsible for this as well. But here the, the apostles and the elders get together to, to deal with this. But then there's debate from the members of the church who were uh, part of the party of the Pharisees. There's debate about this in the church. And after Peter's speech... The whole assembly fell silent. And what did Peter say to them? Just a review of last week. That God had made a choice. That God had 
uh, given the Gentiles the Holy Spirit as a witness that indeed God had converted them, that God had cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles by faith, so that now the church was in danger of putting God to test if they are going to make another condition to the gospel outside of what God has already given them. So Peter concludes his message with this major confession of the Christian message that our salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Period. That's it. It's through grace alone, both for Jews and for Gentiles. Well, after this speech, the whole assembly fell silent. It's an important response. There are moments in the life of a church when the assembly needs to fall silent. The silence is not a matter of stopping the noise, but it's stopping the debate. It's a kind of silence that is stopping the debates that question and oppose God's actions or God's decrees, God's word. When our actions oppose what God has revealed, the best thing we can do is to fall silent and stop debating against God's ways. Now, this kind of silence in church, this ministry of silence in church, does not mean that we're called to check out our brains at the door when we come here. Not at all. That's not the kind of silence we're talking about. But when human beings play with distorting God's revelation, we're actually not believing or actually opposing what God says. We're in danger of putting ourselves in the place of God. Or this silence is also not an abusive silence in church. It's not the kind of silence that's forced by ego-driven uh, self-centered leaders who want to do whatever they want to do and they will not take the accountability from the congregation. That's not the kind of silence that we're talking about here. It's a kind of silence that's caused when people are confronted with the Word of God. When we're faced with the truth of God, our debates against God's ways should stop. We should fall silent. This kind of silence is also a silence for the sake of listening well, preparing ourselves to listen carefully so that God, what God has done, what God has spoken. Friends, I hope that any, every Sunday you come to church, every Sunday we gather here, that we would come with this kind of silence. That when we drive the car, we get ready to be silent before the Lord, to hear what He has to say. Now, there's also times when we have to speak to the Lord and speak praises or speak our sins, confess to Him. And when we gather, there's a moment for that as well in our gathering. But when, hear, when we hear the word of the Lord, be ready to be silent, to hear from Him. A second thing that we see in this passage, and, and as we move to hear the, spe the, the, next, the, the next speeches, the next teachings, um, from Barnabas and James, here's the next point that we get. God validated his salvation through signs and wonders. God validated his salvation to the Gentiles through signs and wonders. Luke doesn't tell us very much about what Barnabas and Paul actually said to the church. Look at verse 12. 
actually we only get a summary of what they have said about signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is what Paul and Barnabas spoke. Now, it's interesting, why is it that we don't, we're not told what those signs are? We, there's mention of them, but we're not told what they were. Well, it's important to remember that even Jesus, when, when he came to preach a gospel, preach a message of salvation, Jesus himself did signs and wonders. And these signs and wonders were performed to authenticate, to validate that what Jesus said about himself, about the way of salvation, is actually true. That behind the message, there was a power. And Jesus did all kinds of signs and wonders so that people might see that behind the offer of salvation, there is a power. Now, in similar ways, in similar ways, when the gospel has been extended to the Gentiles, God validated that message with power, with power to save, with power, with signs, with wonders, so that the, the Jews might realize that when this gospel is presented to the Gentiles, God is acting in similar ways among them as Jesus was acting among the Jews. So Paul and Barnabas relay these miracles in order that the church in Jerusalem might be reminded and informed that God had n held nothing back from the Gentiles. Now, it was common in the Old Testament for God to do miraculous things for his people, among his people. And whenever God would do that, the point was to show that God was in the midst of his people. It was a miraculous way of God showing that he indeed is dwelling among his people. And in the Old Testament, guess where most of the miracles happened? In the midst of the people of Israel. The surprising news here is that God now was acting these miraculous signs and wonders not among the Jews, but among the Gentiles. It was a picture of showing that God was indeed coming among them and his message of salvation came with power, with transformation. In doing so, God showed once again that he had made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Not anymore. So friends, what do we learn from this point? How, what do we today learn from this point? The fact that Barnabas and Paul reminded the church in Jerusalem of God's power through signs and wonders should remind us that God's salvation is not simply a matter of what happens to us after we die. It's not just that. It's about a transformation that starts taking place here and now. The power of God that is able to break the bondage of sin. There's people among us who at in the past they have struggled with strong addictions. I'm reminded of, of Mary Catherine. She's, she's, she's been through a number of addictions in her life, and we have seen the Lord, at least over the last 40-plus, 40 45 year, uh, days or so, that the Lord has broken that bondage. Where is that power coming from? She has asked God to release her of that. It's the power of God to save. It's the power of God to, to free us from sin and its effects. Friends, God's 
salvation is a reality not just for when we die. It's a reality for the here and now. Whether God chooses to give signs and wonders in a similar way today, that's secondary. Miraculous signs and wonders are at God's choice. He decides if and when He will reveal those. He will make those present. But the point is that whenever God comes among us, He wants to intervene. He wants to transform. He wants to show His power to rescue us from sin. The remaining verses of this council are given to James and uh, his speech. And James will have the final words at this council. James is not one of the twelve apostles. He's one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Possibly he's the Lord's brother. Possibly he's also the, man, the one who wrote the epistle uh, of James. Look at what James will emphasize as he wraps up the teaching of this council. So, so far we've looked at the response of silence in the church. We looked at God validating the salvation through signs and wonders. But then look at third point, God visited the Gentiles to take a people for himself. God visited the Gentiles to take a people from himself. Look at verse 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Got a question for you. When did God pay this visit? Look at the passage. James says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. If we go back to James, to, to Peter's uh, sermon or speech, and then to what he actually encountered earlier in Acts, we know that this is about Cornelius' visit, when Peter visited Cornelius. But here we are told that it's not just Peter who visited Cornelius on that day. God visited Cornelius on that day. This means that when Peter actually visited Cornelius and told him the gospel, it was not just Peter who made the visit. It was God paying the visit as well. Here's a point, friends. Every time the gospel is proclaimed and God gives his spirit so that people respond to him, it is an act of God's visitation. I love how David Peterson uh, describes this. God encounters pe uh, people personally through the preaching of the gospel. God encounters people personally through the preaching of the gospel. This preaching doesn't happen just here on Sundays when we're gathered, but also every time we speak the gospel to someone. God is paying up a visit when we preach the gospel. A friend, if you're visiting us today, perhaps someone invited you, perhaps you just decided to walk in, we're so glad you're with us. I don't know if, if you're a Christian or not, but may I ask you a question? Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? I'm not referring to the four books that begin the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John, I am talking about the message of salvation through Jesus. Do you know it? It's a message of good news. It's a message of really good news, but on the backdrop of a really bad situation. It's really good news if you understand how bad the situation is. And here's, here's the news, that even though God made us perfect, sinless, in his image, we human beings, Adam and Eve to be more specific, have rebelled against God. They actually disobeyed God, and they slapped God in the face by saying, we will not do what you have asked us to do. We will rather believe Satan than believe you. And when they did that, when they ate of that tree, not only them, but everyone else after them, the rest of humankind fell into a bondage of rebellion against God, against the Creator. And because of that, we are doomed to God's wrath and judgment, separated from God that we would not even have a desire to come back to God in our broken, corrupt nature. But God, in His love and mercy, provided a way, the only way, to bring rebels back to Himself. And that way is through Jesus, the Son of God, who came on earth, died a horrible death on a cross, and yet three days later, He was raised from the dead to show that indeed He is the Son of God, able to rescue people from death, from bondage, able to bring a new life to those who turn to Him and entrust their lives to Christ. So that anyone who hears this news of God's message of salvation, of bringing people back to Himself through Jesus, if people believe that, if people embrace that, if people realize how bad it is not to have the salvation, people who turn away embrace God and this message are given this new life. Well, whenever this news of the gospel that I just declared to you, whenever this news is, is made clear, God is actually paying a visit. God is actually here, tugging at your heart, saying, turn to me. I want to encounter you. I'm real. My salvation is real. Friends, if you're hearing this word and this message, don't ignore his visit. He's calling you. He wants to have an encounter with you. Before you walk out of this church, before you walk out of your pews, you can have this encounter with God, even now. If you'd like to know more about what this means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But whenever the gospel is made known, God is paying a visit. Now, what does this mean for us Christians? Here's the great news, friends. Whenever you and I have the guts and the courage and the initiative to start speaking to people about the gospel, you're actually facilitating God's visit to that person. Well, next time you, you wonder if you should open up your mouth to ask someone about spiritual things, remember this. Whenever you do it, you're facilitating God a visit to that person. Nobody might know that. The other person might know not, not know that. 
There might not be any fuzzy feeling about that, but you are facilitating a venue by which God is visiting that person. Why would you give that up? I pray that every time we're, we have these opportunities, we would not give up on making these venues possible. Now, what was the purpose of God's visitation? It was not simply for the sake of saving individuals. But look at what verse 13 says. But to take a people for his name. To take from them a people for his name. In other words, salvation is a corporate experience. Yes, it's personal. But its purpose is to form a new people for God. Friends, do you get this corporate nature of salvation? It makes you and I part of God's people. Also, this message of salvation is not ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about the glory of His name. God is taking a people not ultimately for our benefit, but ultimately for His name. Did you get that in verse 13? He's gathering from among them a people for His name. Friends, unless we realize that the ultimate purpose and aim of salvation, of our salvation, is the honor and glory of the name of God, unless we get this ultimate motivation, we may fall in the trap of thinking that man is the ultimate beneficiary of salvation. And we are not. God is. Now, it's true that God saves us. I get that. God saves us, but he saves us for himself. He has the last word. He has the ultimate aim in this salvation. Do you get this? Do you get this? It's not simply that we get God's inheritance. It's that we become his inheritance. That's why he gets us for himself. And we get to be representatives of his name and a reflection of his character on earth and for eternity. That's the purpose of the church. That's the meaning of, of people who have been saved by God's grace alone, who now gather every week, who live in community, that we might show what it means to live for his name because we have been saved for his name. What is amazing about James describing the Gentiles in this way is that the imagery of God taking a people for himself was a language used in the Old Testament when God took Israel from among all the nations to make them his people. There are so many examples. Let me just bring one example from the Old Testament. Book of Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 20. Moses tells the Israelites, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are today. Now, this language is used by James to describe the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. You see, in the Old Testament, God took one nation out of many nations. He selected one nation to be his people. Now, God is taking a people from all the nations. A people made of all the nations. There's a significant change here. 
so that the people of God are no longer restricted to one nation after this moment. Oh, what a major change this is. The people of God are no longer determined on nationalistic boundaries. We can no longer speak about one nation as being God's people because God is building up a people for himself from all the nations of the earth. There's only one people of God, and it's no longer a nationalistic people. This means that we should love this people of God more than we love any one nation on earth. Be that our own nation, be that the nation of Israel, be that any other nation. The people God is forming is what we should love. And the people God is forming now is made of representatives of people of all the nations. God had visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This is how James summarizes Peter's speech. Next, and lastly for James, he will appear to Scripture as evidence that, God's center, that God is center in this salvation. God is center in the salvation. How do we know this? Well, not only from the way Peter described what God had done, not only from the way Paul and Barnabas uh, showed that God indeed was working miracles to, to validate the salvation, not only by the summary that God was calling people from all the nations of the earth to form this people for himself, there's one more proof that God is center in all of this. And that proof comes from Scripture. James will appeal to Scripture. Look at uh, what James does. Verse 15. And th with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he goes on and quotes from the book of Amos. My friends, when was the last time you read from the book of Amos? We just read 12 verses earlier in the, in, the, in the service. And did you get what that just one chapter was about? Actually, that one chapter was about what the whole book was about. Message of judgment, message, message of warning, message of destruction. God was declaring that against his own people, Israel and Judah more specifically, um, because they have wandered away from God. But at the end of that chapter, there's a few verses of hope, the only verses of hope, but they're huge verses of hope. And they have to do with this. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Do you hear what God is saying? Who's doing the restoration? Who's taking the credit for it? There's nothing in this restoration that is credited to the nation of Israel. This restoration is all about what God will do. God will come back. God will rebuild. God will restore. But what is the purpose of this restoration? It's not simply to restore the tent of David for its own sake. Look at, the, at verse 17. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Did you get that? 
This is why God is planning, promising to restore the tent of David, to restore the, the remnant of Israel so that all the nations, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And who are those of the mankind? All the Gentiles who are called by my name. Oh, what a promise. What a promise. This tells us that from the nations of the world, those who will seek the Lord are those on whom the Lord has put his name. In other words, the Lord has put his name not just on Israel. The Lord has put his name on peoples from the Gentiles. And when they hear the word of the gospel, they will respond to the Lord. What a promise this is. What a promise. Oh, friend, if you hear this message of great hope this morning, this message of salvation, God is calling you to be His, to belong to the people whom He is now restoring, gathering for Himself through the message of the gospel. Turn to Him. After James finished this quotation from the book of Amos, he draws a recommendation. And the recommendation is, friends, let's protect the gospel. Verses 19 through um, 21, Peter says, I mean, James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble them. Don't put other conditions on them. Conditions for being saved. Now, James goes on and says, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Wow, what a recommendation this is. What is, what is this about? Well, there's been much, much debate about these requirements that James is suggesting. Are these things we should do today as well? Um, and to what extent and how? I'll be dealing more with this next week when these recommendations will come again in the actual letter that they will write. But let me say here at the end of this message two things. First, these are not conditions for salvation. Second, they represent a decision not to trouble the Gentiles who turn to the Lord. In other words, these conditions actually have to deal more with the fact that Moses is being read in every city in which the gospel is being proclaimed. This, this is an important hint. It's, it's about the reality that now Gentile believers in, in, in every city will, will be encountering Jewish believers. And for some of these Jewish believers, Moses is still is read continuously. For some of these Jewish believers, their conscience is still influenced by, by the law of Moses. So that it's not just about the gospel, the truth of the gospel being protected, but also about the fellowship of the gospel being protected. So that Moses, I mean, James is saying, abstain for, for, from these things, not because they're conditions to the gospel, but because Jewish believers who are now brought in the same body as you, they have a hard time with these. Don't make the fellowship with them more difficult. Abstain for them, from them for the sake of protecting not just the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but the fellowship of the gospel as well. Friends, this is how the Jerusalem Council ended. 
Next week, we will see at the letter they write to the churches to write an official recommendation. But here's the bottom line. We as a church have been entrusted with the gospel, have been called to protect it. You and I, if you're a Christian, we have this charge. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help that we may continue this baton, pass on this baton, and carry it out with faithfulness. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, thank you that you have entrusted us with the gospel. Thank you that you have given us a great treasure, a weighty treasure, a glorious treasure. Lord, thank you that you have given us a picture of how the church in Jerusalem struggled through protecting this gospel and how it, they prevailed in protecting this gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray that we as well, here and now, we might be given the same charge, the zeal and the know-how to protect this gospel, that we may not add to it, that we may not cheapen it, that we may not skew it, distort it, and change it. Oh, Lord, would you be glorified through the proclamation of the gospel, through the lips of your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.